He makes pots, he creates powerful sculptural forms, and during his demonstration and artist talk last year as part of a speaker series at Stetson University, Wesley Brown took viewers on Zoom through the making of a teapot, and here's how they reported that experience. Starting with a large flattened piece of clay, Brown uses a steel rod, his knuckles, handprints, a roller, dried pieces of clay, sharpened clay tools, and bits of old clay crushed into dust to create all kinds of multi-layered texture in his clay. Ceramists use slip, a smooth mixture of clay and water, to help connect pieces of clay. And while Brown is no different, he uses a thicker, clumpier version to bind his work. He connects randomized geometric pieces cut out from his textured slab into an asymmetric base and has a previously made wheel-spun piece of pottery ready that will make up the top of the teapot. Connecting the two is intricate work involving cutting out parts of the top section to fit the uneven and jagged edges of the bottom. He uses newer pieces of his textured clay, slip, and rolled coils to fill in the empty sections and connect them. It's not scientific, but it gives me some results, Brown says, as he runs his wetted hands over his creation to find any leftover cracks he must fill. After creating a smooth, curved spout and a handle at the top that is designed to fit naturally into the user's hand to the top of the teapot, Brown's work is finished. That from the Creative Arts Department Anti-Racism Committee for Equity at Stetson University. On Brown's website, we see teapots we might describe as rough, rugged, others still sculptural, with titles like the necessary balance. They are playing more with formal shapes, domes, circles, and such. There is one titled simply Teapot, identified only as having been made from a black clay body and wood-fired, a piece from 2015. Its shape, profile, handle placement, and overall feel suggests an influence from China. Interestingly, 2015 is the year after Wesley Brown took part in a study clay abroad program in China. When asked, though, about his time in China, Brown says almost nothing about what he took in about the ancient art of Chinese ceramics, but rather what it meant for him as a black man to be in a culture where, for the very first time, he was referred to simply as an American. No hyphens, no qualifiers. We'll begin to understand then how important questions of identity are for Wesley Brown and how they cannot be separated from his creative process and the pieces that result. Wesley Brown holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree from Bowling Green State University and a Master's of Fine Arts from Indiana University. He is currently instructor of ceramics and Frederick Douglass Scholar at East Stroudsburg University. And he will offer a presentation titled My Time and Place that will take place this Wednesday, March 2nd at 5.30 p.m. in Beers Lecture Hall on the campus the presentation will be live streamed as well on the ESU Live events webpage, and it's all part of East Stroudsburg University's Provost's Colloquium series. 
we had a chance to speak by phone with Wesley Brown about the evolution of his life and his work and how it all began for him. As far as I can remember, I was always a drawer. I always loved drawing. Fudgy soldiers, horses. And then as I got older, I got into animation or animated shows and trying to take those and comic books and stuff like that. So I've always, I've always enjoyed making stuff and drawing and like having that kind of an outlet. Now, I don't think I ever, I never thought of any of my drawings myself as like a form of art. It was just something that I did. Luckily, I had parents who were both very, very supportive. So even at a young age, they recognized that. And it must have been maybe in middle school. I wasn't in high school yet. But they actually were like, well, would you like to take a drawing class? Yeah. And so I took a drawing class at the local community center. It was me and like five other senior citizens learning colored pencil, maybe sixth and seventh grade. Yeah, it's always been something that I've done. And it wasn't until I got into high school that I got into clay. And it wasn't until I got into community college that I realized, well, yeah, this, this is kind of it. I went back to drawing and realized for a year I did only drawing classes. I stayed out of the ceramic studio. When I got back in the ceramic studio, I was just like, this is it. I don't know how to make a living doing this, but I'm going to find a way. <laughs> in the early work we see on your site, there is, in fact, some drawing on the pots themselves, isn't there? Yeah, that, that work, particularly the, the work about race, which actually I had somebody who confronted me on that. He's like, was the work really about race or was it about identity? Yeah, that's a different way of thinking about it. Yeah, you can be abstract. But I figured with all the literal things that were happening, there was no way that I could create that work and not have literal bodies depicted on the surface of pop. It's really been the only work where I've actually cited any kind of recognizable human. And that, that was probably, and, and I'll talk more about this at the talk, that work was hugely impactful. <laughs> it's not for anyone else, definitely for me, it definitely changed. I had to go through a tremendous amount of change in actually looking into the history of African Americans in the U.S., which I had never learned to a full extent. I would almost even say learned almost at all, which had led me to some very, very bad beliefs about <laughs> my own race. And so I had to go through a massive enlightenment, reading books, so many books, to even make that work. Yeah, it was definitely, I'll show some images that are even earlier than that in the talk, and let's just say I'm, I'm all over the place. <laughs> that was probably the first time I was able to actually, when I put those images, where I was actually able to make a cohesive body of work that worked together well. Of course, we can't help but think about it as you're probably going through the history and you're examining the history of slavery in the U.S., the fact of the real physicality that that meant, that the bodies were enslaved, that the chains were on, and the real hard work in the fields and all of that, and the clay and the earth, that must have been part of your conversation with yourself, yeah? Oh, yeah, definitely. The, the physicality of it, and I think it was a really, it was an odd experience, because you're learning all of this, and it's, it's a completely different thing. I, I remember I, I read for the first time Uncle Tom's Cabin, and I read it on my own while in North Carolina doing that studying at East Fork Pottery when they were located outside of uh, Asheville. And then I worked at Daniel Johnson's Pottery outside of Seagrove in Iraq. And so I'm sitting there in the afternoons with no TV, just in my room reading that book and just the 
horrors of what is going on in the speeches. And I know that some of it is quotes <laughs> that she borrowed from actual people, and some of it is, of course, fictitious. But you're reading it, and it, it just started to come alive. And I, I, I can't remember her name. Was it Dr. Joy DeGree? She's written a book and, and done a series of talks about post-traumatic slave syndrome, of, of, of really following in that idea of the book The Body to Count by M.D. Besselman, Sir Clark, if I can remember correctly. But the ways in which a trauma can affect a whole group of people, even if they weren't directly related. And it's a really odd thing to spend all of your life being told, like, oh, yeah, you, your, your ancestors were slaves. And it's like, well, yeah, okay, I got an idea of that. But then to actually read, this is what it actually meant. This is what actually happened. Here are accounts from people listening to some, even listening to some audios of people who had come out of slavery in the early 1900s, or the early 20th century, who were like, this is what happened. This is what I lived through. And that just being just haunting memories. I mean, there were so many nights where I, I would become, I think it was James Baldwin, like, to be a black man in America is to be constantly angry. And I was angry, but also heartbroken. Because you're reading this and you're just like, my goodness, this is what happened to my great, 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 great grandfather. I don't know how many greats there is in there. And it was it was very, very hard to get through that, but also necessary. What's intriguing about the earlier work, it looks like you're still holding on to form and there's some beauty in the shapes and so forth, even though what you're dealing with is horrific, as you said. Now, you're going to break through later on, but at this moment, is there a tension between holding to form that we might expect to be a pot and what you're going through emotionally? Yeah, I I feel like the work today is very much a harmony. But it's a harmony found between two kind of disparate things. The wheel sound are smooth and the highly textured, which I, I think is a projection of heck, your, your psyche and your relationships. We understand that every person is a multitude, but our presentation to others can always be simplified, whether that's out of fear or out of necessity. Or, and so you, you're marrying all of that together. And so when I'm making, particularly my functional words, which is what I'm doing today. It, it is that marrying of the two. How, how, do you, how do you understand yourself to be complex and broken and fragmented, or, but still held together as a unity and still serve a greater function, uh, not just for yourself, but those around you? I did a, a bit of reading in grad school, which you could say was the impetus of this, which was the German philosopher, or Hebrew philosopher, depending on what time <laughs> of his life you referring to, but Martin Buber, and is talking about the I thou. How, how is it that we are able to even relate to one another? And is there, a, for him, he posited the idea that there was a hierarchy in the ways that we relate to each other, and that there was, in his words, the I thou, to, to recognize your own full humanity and recognize the humanity of another. Uh, to not as a useful utilitarian being, but rather a human. And so going through that, yeah, I mean, working through it all. <laughs> Once you think you got a handle on it, something changes. It's reinterpreted. And you have a body of work, actually, that you call I, Thou. Exactly. And I mean, so much of that work when I was making it, it was highly narrative. The base was rough. 
It had some poles. The top was smooth. <laughs> and it wasn't until a uh, visiting professor, Steve Clark, out of Missouri, came and was just like, this is great. But it's so bogged in narrative. What if you just let the piece breathe? What if you let the piece live? And so, so much of my life has also been, you can get really wound up into a single idea of what something should be. And <laughs> it, it just takes a trusted friend, colleague, or teacher to come in and say, hey, man, maybe you just lighten up on this. Hey, how about you, uh, I know what you're thinking, and you're putting it all in there, and you're doing it very literally. What if you uh, allowed yourself a little bit of mystery in the work? What if you didn't need to know every time? What if you let some spontaneity in? And I've, I've, for the last four or so years, that's been a huge joy. How do you know what you want to say, but then let some parts of it just exist? Let there be mystery. You don't have to know everything. Tell our listeners the way you describe the taking of the slabs and throwing them on the floor. Yeah, so I mean, clay has a physicality to it, and I think that's probably one of the things that I love about it most is you can measure it <laughs> and cut, and if you cut a short, you can just add more clay to it. And so clay has this way where you can add things, and you can take things away, and it's made out of matter. So when you stretch it, especially if you stretch it across the floor, so if you have a concrete floor and you take a slab of clay, you get it somewhat flat, you can start to toss it, and what it'll do is it'll hit the floor, and it'll catch. But the top surface, because it's not anchored and it's not getting caught, will continue to stretch. And so that top surface will then, doesn't stretch uniformly, but it starts to break apart, starts to tear. The surface becomes incredibly beautiful based on how your clay is formulated, the particle size, how dry, how wet it is. And so by throwing it across the floor and letting it stretch itself out, it creates its own natural tears. And I, I became fascinated with the physicality of making that happen, but the material being allowed to do what it naturally does when it's stretched, not formed by human hands directly, but as a result of an action. And yet then you'd work with that, then you might cut up what's on the floor. Oh, yes. You take those and you stand them into the form that you want, but I try not to do any manipulation. Once I've added that texture, I want to keep it. I want to keep that texture through to the very end because I want, I want the beauty of the material. I want, I want those cracks. I want those tears. And so you take it and you set it up into the forms that you want. So you take that flat slab and you start standing it. You can get it into a cylinder. You can get it into a bowl shape. You let that sit out overnight and you come in the following day and this thing that was beautifully plastic, beautifully malleable, within so much time letting air lick away that water to become stiff. And suddenly you're able to hold it and interact with it in an entirely different way. And I love that about clay. I, I, I feel like I've devoted a good amount of my life to it. <laughs> and it, it doesn't get old. I, I think as a child, I'd worry, I don't know how many children worry about this, but how will I ever find something interesting for the rest of my life? <laughs> like, how will there ever be more to do? And I feel like I've really found it. Now, was that the kind of impulse behind Monument and what you've been doing since? Oh, very much so. Very much so. The monuments are making these large, almost up to five feet tall, and usually ranging anywhere from 
I think probably 100 to 400 pounds. Uh, a couple of them, my goodness, I had three other guys, four in total lifting them, and we were still struggling. I wasn't the best at construction, so they got rather sick <laughs> rather quickly. So making these large works and then, of course, leaving the school format when they graduated and realizing, man, I can't keep making these. This clay I have to pay for now <laughs> in a different way. And so slowly going, well, what if I, what if I brought that to the dinner table? I brought these forms down, and then, hey, history of ceramics is it's indiscernible from utility, indiscernible from pottery. What if I made these in the pots? What if I made pots hit these? What would that look like? And that, that just led to a whole other realm of discovery, and how can you take the potter's wheel and this hand-built, stretched, torn pieces and bring them again into one? So many possibilities. What happened in China? You studied in China? Yeah, oh my goodness. I studied abroad. <laughs> I had never left the country before, and I, I got signed up. I was going to Bowling Green State University, but I heard about West Virginia University study China and clay. So I, I remember going to the study abroad office at Bowling Green and just asking, like, can we get assistance? And they said no. And I was like, well, what if I tried to raise all the funds myself? And so by a series of miracles, I was able to go to China and that was nuts because it was it was really something because it, I I've never been to Europe but I imagine it's probably a completely different experience because I was walking into a place that didn't have a history of chattel slavery at least not of Africans and so it was odd but there was also this timelessness to everything everything was so old I mean. How many statues do we have in the U.S. that are over a thousand years old? We don't have that. How many structures do we have that are over a thousand years old? It's like, well, I've lived in the Midwest. At most, we have them from the 1800s. But even then, very, very rudimentary stonework, you're not going to see a lot of it. And so going to this place that has this long history, and, and knowing that in that place, I was never going to sit in visually. I remember they tell you over and over again all the things that you're supposed to do when you're a study abroad student. And you're supposed to, you know, stay away from any riots, stay away from any protests, blend in. And I was like, I'm like six foot one and have the startings of dreadlocks and I'm black. Like, there's no way I'm going to fit in. Like, there's no way I'm going to be able to disappear into a crowd. So I, I'm just going to walk with my head held high. And so that was a very decoupling experience. In studying in China and walking around the city, which I know they told me not to do a terrible amount, at least in all the briefings before, but when I got there, I was like, I'm just going to walk around for a few hours. I'm just going to walk around Shanghai. I'm just going to walk around Beijing. I want to see what's happening on the street. How are people walking? What does their fashion look like? And coming to a place that was so not on the same pattern as the U.S., a whole different, whole different understanding. Well, what does it mean? And probably the most, what later became, what I thought was amusing at the time and later became heartbreaking, the first time that I was ever referred to as an American. No hyphen. Just being like, Americold? And I'd be like, yes, I'm Americold. Yes, I'm, I am American. And they'd be like, ah, oh, that's cool. <laughs> and they just nod their heads in approval. And, and then I come back to the U.S. and I'm black American, African American. And for the first time, I was recognized as actually being a part of that majority. And that was huge. I mean, I remember I came back and I was just like, well, you know, that was kind of funny. And the more I thought about it, the more it actually brought me to the point of tears of being like, wow, I was actually just kind of accepted as an American. I don't feel like I get that here. I don't feel like by adding a hyphen at times, it, it 
really can seem to almost delegitimize the claim to being an American. What year was that, Wes? Uh, that was 2014. Yes, yes, it was 2014. Because it was the same summer as Ferguson and all the Mike Brown stuff. I was watching the U.S. going through race riots. I was in China, and then when I came back, I was in the South. We was, again, a very big change, a very rapid one. You have a Ferguson jar. Mm-hmm. Did that just well up from inside? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I, I grew up with a mixed identity. It was not quite understanding where I belonged. And without going and giving too much of the talk away, I mean, there was, there was a real question of well, where where do I belong? It's like, well, do I belong with black kids or do I belong with white kids? Because of the culture that I grew up in was, was very much not the usually portrayed monolith of black experience. I grew up in the suburbs. My father was a military career man. Both my parents had college degrees. Both of my parents believed in education. So we went to private school. And I grew up in a loving home. And my mother was a stay-at-home. Like, it was a very different experience from many of the black kids that I came to know at school who were coming from literally the other side of the track, and for which I was bullied a pretty strong amount for being so different. And so the question of, well, do I belong here or do I belong there, that led to a a series of, and the lack of education on the matter and the lack of communication leads the child to come up with some very weird view of himself. And so by the time 2014 rolled around, I made some the most meaningful relationships with the most meaningful conversations on the race. And someone had told me, just plain out, <laughs> you're not right. <laughs> you don't know what's going on. You have a lot of formed ideas that are ignorant. And so that, that's what led to me discovering African-American history for the first time and exploring it and connecting it to myself. And at the same time, I'm watching Ferguson where people are literally screaming out and the injustices have never stopped. They've never stopped. I'm really intrigued by the fact that you went into textiles, quilting and so forth. How did you bring those two things together? It was textiles that led me to the work that I'm doing. It was getting in there and learning how to screen print. And then our first assignment was to screen print, rip the screen print to pieces and then sew it back together into a quilt. And there was a number of very serious issues going on in my life that had put me in a very fragile state, but a very questioning state of who am I and how do I even move on with what was happening? And so when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, I had this, you have this idea of what you're doing and then you have to rip it apart and then you have to put it back together. And I was like, that's it. That's my life. I thought I knew what was happening. It just got ripped in front of me. And now I have to figure out how to put it back together. And I was like, I've got to to take this to the studio. This way of thinking, this way of making is so comparable to my experience right now. But I don't have answers for how I'm even supposed to go forward. But I'm going to make something that makes sense of what's happening. And so art is also an outlet to give voice, give body to the things you can't explain. I think it was an abstract painter, Robert Tuttle, who said in an interview, artists are like clouds, and 
no artist, for the most part, had a good childhood in many ways. Because the desire to make art so often is a desire to communicate, and it's a desire to communicate to the visual, the visual artist, because you don't have the skills to do it verbally. And I, I, I resonate with that. The idea of, well, I, I didn't know how to say things, but I learned how to draw, which helped me get all the things that I kind of didn't know how to process out. And so that's very much where, where a lot of my work comes from, is trying to process through what's happening. That's, that's a great question. And we talk more about that at the talk, and where do ideas come from, and how do you keep them going, how do things change, how have I changed, what were the questions that I asked, what were the questions that were forced <laughs> And how do you come to how do you come to new understandings of that, which is always exciting. Wesley Brown, instructor of ceramics and Frederick Douglass Scholar at East Stroudsburg University, speaking with us in anticipation of a presentation he'll offer titled My Time and Place that will take place this Wednesday, March 2nd, at 5.30 p.m in Beer's Lecture Hall. The presentation will also be live-streamed on the ESU Live Events webpage, and it's all part of East Stroudsburg University's Provost's Colloquium series. That's an intellectual experience that promotes dialogue among ESU faculty, staff, students, and the community. And this is Wesley Brown with a presentation, My Time and Place. For more information on the web, ESU.edu, ESU.edu. That's the Provost's Colloquium Series at East Stroudsburg University this Wednesday, March 2nd at 5.30 p.m. in Beers Lecture Hall and live-streamed as well on the ESU Live Events webpage. For more information on the web, esu.edu, esu.edu. And to see the work of Wesley Brown, his own website is wesleytbrown.com. So it's W-E-S-L-E-Y-T-Brown.com.